from all of us at the Campbell Law Reporter, we want to wish you a happy Women's History Month. This month, Campbell Law School's First Ladies of the North Carolina Judiciary exhibit will be featured on the All Things Judicial podcast. The exhibit contains rare showcasings of the first North Carolina women to break a number of judicial barriers throughout North Carolina's judicial history. The exhibit also showcases some of the many women that have made a significant impact from the bench in North Carolina. You can learn more about this exhibit on the All Things Judicial podcast, which airs bi-monthly on all major podcast platforms, or you can come see it for yourself at Campbell Law School. At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. My name is Lloyd Newman, and today we're joined by a very special guest, Professor Lucas Osborne. Professor Osborne, how are you? Great, great. So, little teaser for everybody. Are you a Swifty? Taylor, Taylor Swifty? No, I'm not a Swifty. My daughter listens to some of it, but she's not a Swifty either. So, Well, today I was hoping that we could go through some of the ins and outs of intellectual property, which have plagued the Swifties of late. <laughs> yeah. Is that all right? That sounds good. So uh, first, I know uh, just a little background on Professor Osborne. He is our uh, intellectual property professor here at Campbell University. And so first, can you help me get an understanding of what is intellectual property? Why do we protect intellectual property? And yeah. So intellectual property, broadly speaking, encompasses patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, design patents, and probably some other things that can be thrown in there. When you're talking about why do we protect it, copyright and patent law are both based on a clause in our constitution. I'm told we have the only constitution that mentions intellectual property. I haven't read all the other constitutions to verify that, but the idea is a utilitarian one in the United States, which is we want to incentivize an optimal level of creation of patentable works and copyrightable works. So patentable are more useful things like widgets, computers, that sort of thing. Whereas copyright is trying to incentivize creative expression, books, movies, pictures, paintings, all that sort of stuff. So that's the purpose is to incentivize an optimal level of creation of these things. So how, how do we go about protecting it in a way that uh, the Constitution dictates, I imagine? So the Constitution is very broad. It doesn't dictate any particular thing. It just says that needs to be why you do it. And if you, you try to do something for uh, another reason, maybe that would be unconstitutional, perhaps. And it has to be for limited times, according to the Constitution. So you couldn't have a copyright that lasts forever or a patent that lasts forever. But the basic idea is that it's much cheaper to copy than it is to create on your own. So it might take us, if we were to write a book, it might take us quite a while. Somebody else gets a digital, digital copy of that. They can copy it costlessly, infinitely. 
And then if they undersell us or they give it away for free, then people like you and me are going to go, one, never going to write a book again, perhaps, or I'm going to be less likely to because I can't make any money off of this and I got to feed my family or what have you. So that's the basic idea. Well, I wonder how applicable you think that is today being that like, you know, somebody can create a TikTok on their phone, right? Or something like that. And it took them all of five minutes to do it. It just so happens to go viral. You know, well, I guess this kind of segues into the next question. What, what do I need? You know, I just made my little TikTok here. What do I need to do to now make it copyrighted? Yeah, so two, two things are raised there. First is, do we need, do we need a, a copyright system or a patent system? We'll focus on copyright here. That is a one size fits all because that's pretty much what we have right now. If it falls within the realm of copyright, it gets protection for life of the author plus 70 years. So a long, long time, whether it's perhaps, well, maybe it's a five or 10 or whatever second TikTok video that gets you over that level of protection is the same level of protection that a nice, you know, $200 million budget movie gets, you know, life of the author or, or something along those lines. So. We have a one-size-fits-all system, and no, we probably don't need copyright to incentivize people to create TikTok videos. And yet, the way it's designed, it does protect those sorts of things. So what you need to have, according to copyright law, to have protection, you need to have some original expression that's put in a tangible medium, right? So original expression means something that is original to the individual person. They they came up with it on their own. They didn't copy it from somebody else. It does not mean original in the sense that maybe art theorists might think of originalism. Nobody's ever painted like this before. It's not that level of originality at all. The courts have said it, all it requires is a modicum of creativity, which means a tiny bit of creativity, some sort of choice by the author that's unconstrained by uh, utilitarian concerns or other things. So you have to have that modicum of creativity it has to be not copied, right? Now it's theoretically possible that you and I write two poems that are exactly the same and neither of us know about each other. We didn't copy each other. We would both have copyright protection for the same poem. It's theoretically possible, practically very unlikely. Then you have to fix it in a tangible medium of expression. What does that mean? Well, if you write it on paper, it's protected. If you paint it on a canvas, it's protected. If you put it in your computer's memory, which is what a lot of this TikTok and everything is, that is a tangible medium of expression. You know, a VCR tape, a CD-ROM, any of that counts as a tangible medium. It, it's medium that can be touched and computer memory can be touched. And then once you've done that, you have a copyrightable work, assuming it meets all those other. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to file anything with the copyright office. You have a copyright at that point. So, you know, hypothetically, like when you were saying with the modicum of expression, you know, I come up with a jingle or I write a poem and I say it into my voice recorder that we're recording this with, without ever publishing it to anybody, without sending it to any government office, without anything, I suddenly have a copyright on that material. Correct. That intellectual property. Assuming it has meets the modicum of creativity requirement, right? And it's original to you and now it's fixed in a tangible medium. This podcast is now, it's being fixed in a tangible medium. It's copyrightable expression. So we have a copyright. Congratulations. <laughs> that makes me feel special. <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the interesting thing is you were saying how improbable it would be that two people would arrive at the same idea at the same time. Uh, I mean, I, you know, the fact that I could have this great idea, I could be going forward and somebody that's got something locked away on a hard drive from a decade ago can come in force against me. 
you know, protect their rights against me, you know, does that not worry people at all? Does it just not happen? So you're kind of baiting me, I think, on purpose, right? By saying I have this idea and they have a similar idea. And and copyright has a very basic principle that says ideas cannot be copyrighted. Ideas, broad ideas, the idea of of uh, boy meets girl or forbidden love where the parents don't want the, the kids to see each other and fall in love. Those are big ideas, big picture ideas. You can't protect those with copyright. What you can protect is the creative expression where you flesh out that basic idea of forbidden love and you write a detailed story like Romeo and Juliet or what have you. So that is a layer of protection right there against this we don't want somebody that captures a basic idea to have control over that idea for a hundred years or, or whatever it might be, because that actually stifles follow on creativity. It's, it might stifle the ability of people to write, think how many love stories are out there. You know, that would all be stifled if somebody could copyright a love story. So it, the idea that it has to not only the, the, the principle that it can't just be an idea, but it has to be expression and that expression must be a modicum of creativity kind of, gets you away from that worry that you're thinking about. And once you get down to even a sonnet, there's a million sonnets out there and no two probably independently are created exactly alike, right? Because there's just too many choices in words, et cetera, even within a set framework of what a sonnet has to be that you don't run into that problem except on law school exams or in theoretical <laughs> um, places. So, you know, in this hypothetical law school exam, you know, if I do want to protect it, you know, just kind of overview, like what would an enforcement or protection action look like? So good question and very important point for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, which is you get the copyright protection immediately once you fix it on a piece of paper or on a computer. Remember, you get copyright protection, but that's a different question than whether you can enforce that copyright protection. So in order to enforce it, you've got to bring a lawsuit. Copyright is exclusively federal jurisdiction in the United States. So you have to bring it in federal court, not state court. And there's a rule that also says you cannot bring it in federal court unless and until you have a copyright registration. So practically speaking, you need to get a copyright registration. The way you do that is you file a form with the Copyright Office. You submit a sample of what it is you want to protect. And oversimplifying a bit, it's simply a rubber stamp procedure. They don't they don't look at your work and say, is this sonnet aesthetically good enough? They just say, okay, you have a registration. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's what happens. It's not expensive. You don't need a lawyer to do it. Anybody can get online and figure out how to do that pretty much. And then, and only then can you bring a lawsuit. So then you say, well, why don't I just wait until I find somebody I want to sue and then file the registration once that issues, then bring the lawsuit. You can do that. And many people do because it's not costless to get a copyright registration. It's only 50 bucks, 100 bucks, something on that magnitude. But if you're producing a bunch of photographs, all of a sudden that adds up pretty quickly. There is a drawback to waiting though. If you, if you wait to file your registration, you lose some, you call them rights or opportunities to recover damages a certain way. So if you, let's suppose you just wait and you file, you file your registration when you find somebody's infringing you. Then you can sue them once you get the registration, but then you have to prove how you have been damaged and you have to prove your actual damages. And sometimes that's hard to prove how many sales of my photograph or my TikTok views have I lost because of what you have done. And it's very hard to prove that. Mm -hmm. And so if I can't prove that with some reasonable certainty, 
I end up not with a recovery. There is a violation, but I get no money for it. I can maybe make you stop and maybe that's helpful to me, but most people want some money. Then it, let's change the facts instead to you already had a registration of the copyright registration form filled out and approved by the copyright office. And then somebody infringes and then you sue them. So we've just changed the order. It is now you have the registration, then the infringement happens. Then in that lawsuit, you have the chance to prove actual damages, but you also have the fallback option of claiming statutory damages, which are damages fixed by statute that say, no matter what, even if you can't prove any actual damages, you at least get X. And X is actually a range from a couple hundred dollars all the way up to possibly a hundred thousand or more dollars, depending on all the facts and circumstances. So at least it's something, right? That I, you took my TikTok video. I only have 10 viewers. I can't, you know, I didn't really lose much money, but I can get 200 bucks, 500 bucks out of you. And that's better than nothing. And maybe even more. And it's a lot of discretion for the trial court to give you more sometimes. Well, I think that's really interesting. So I'm a comedian in my pastime, uh -huh. and it's no notorious in our field is that you know, the up and comers like myself, we come out and do jokes, we work the material. And then all of a sudden, the more seasoned guy comes, sees our set, they either if they have moral character, they will then, you know, book us, have us write for them, do whatever. Or if they don't have more, they just take our jokes, and then they'll start telling them, right. And so then it's like, if I had copyrighted my material, then I would actually get something. Right. Whereas because I don't have a copyright, it's like, look, he said it verbatim. Like, that's my joke. Yeah. But I get paid, you know, three bucks to go to Charlie Goodnights, you know, and I right. get no money. So it's like I don't have any actual damages to prove. Yeah. And there's some law professors out there that write on that very topic and write on other things like magicians, tricks, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, there's interesting doctrinal questions. Did you write your jokes down or did you only stand up or perform because if all you did was orally perform them, they're not fixed in a tangible medium unless you mm. happen to be recording or something like that. And even if you wrote them down, you got protection, but you can get to the same joke by slightly changing the words and slightly changing things. And so you can't protect the idea of a punchline, mm. right? But you could, if they got too close to your choice of words and how you lead up to the punchline, then they could infringe. So it's not a bright line like, oh, they took my joke. That's kind of like they took my idea they need to take a lot of your, you know, the, the, the specific wording of how you did your joke. And if they get there a different way, they can get away with it in the copyright sense, perhaps. So mm -hmm. just get you to those gray areas of the law of how much did you take? Did you take all of it exactly? And, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, more. No, that's uh, that's interesting because I think, you know, the the trade itself, like it points it out all the time. Like, you know, he took that joke from such and such or so and so. Right. But like from the legal perspective, you know, it's not a bunch of comedian jurists that I love right. on the court. So right. it's like uh, whether he took it or not is, you know, one thing in the real world and another thing in the legal world. Right. So right. as much as I'd love to continue talking about myself, which is always my favorite topic, uh, I did tease about the Swifties. Yes. So uh, have you had an opportunity to kind of uh, brush up on the Taylor Swift litigation and all of her, uh, you know, troubles with getting sued for intellectual property issues? She joins a lot of famous artists being sued lately for you stole my song ideas. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just kind of stepping back from the law a little bit, does, is this kind of normally the factual scenario like, you know, Taylor Swift is just top of the charts. She's making money. She's, 
you know, just raking it in. She's on top of the world. And it seems like the people that are suing her are people that were either historically in that position and now they've kind of fallen off and they've been relegated to the dustbin of history or they never have been at that level. And so, you know, it rarely seems like the top is punching down as much as the bottom is punching up. Right. Is that kind of normally how it... I certainly don't pay close enough attention that I could say empirically that's absolutely the fact, but that that's that seems to be what you see in the headlines anyway it may be that because if you're the one that's on the top if you're the popular singer what people are doing are often verbatim taking your songs they're either downloading the actual sound recording of your voice or they're doing a cover of your song and maybe they didn't get the proper license and that's usually handled by the collective rights organizations ascap bmi those sorts of things that are going to the bars and enforcing it that way so there's probably a lot going in either direction, but the full on, you stole my song, but you try to change it and make it your own kind of thing seems to be, you're right, more from the quote bottom up. That's interesting though. So there, you know, there's enforcement from the top down, but then mm -hmm. there's also, you know, kind of give me some money from the, you know, bottom up. So it kind of flows in both directions. Yep. So uh, as I understand it, kind of with the Taylor Swift litigation, the issue was, and I, and I want to get the right wording, uh, players gonna play. Yeah. Um, so Taylor Swift is being sued by a artist for that had previously been recorded as saying players gonna play. Uh, players they are gonna play or something like that. Players they gonna play. So there was a they in there or something extra. But yes, wrote a wrote a song that had players they gonna play, haters they gonna hate. And she has players going to play, 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 play. Yeah. <laughs> Even I'm not as so much that I don't know that song. Right? So, yeah, I take it your daughter is, uh, you know, that was before, right? right? That was even before my daughter was listening to music. But, yeah, I've at least heard of that song. Well, I think that's a good point because, uh, as you said, I mean, I'm, I know your daughter's not that young. And so this litigation has been going for a while. Right. And so how many, you know, judicial resources have been taken up and fighting over players going to play, haters going to hate. Like, yeah. Um, you know. Not an insignificant <laughs> amount. It went up to the Ninth Circuit. Right. So you've got, you've got you know, quite a bit of legal bills piling up and uh, judicial resources for sure. So kind of as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, she gets sued by this former artist for having infringed upon uh, their previous copyright for this what would I say? Lyric? Would that be the right? Yeah, and I don't know it that that closely, right? Because normally you would say you infringed my song, right? You okay. get a protection for a work, and the work is generally that could be the lyrics, because the lyrics could be just like a poem. It could be the melody. So we've seen other uh, the Marvin Gaye case, right, where you took kind of the melody, the look, the feel of my song. Um, this is about the lyrics, right? Mm -hmm. So you infringe an entire work. So your song's lyrics infringe my song's lyrics, but the focus was on those particular phrases that we've talked about, because I guess the rest of the song was so different that we were just zeroing in. So it's kind of, it makes sense to short circuit and say, you infringe these parts of my song. Cause in the end, that's the infringement question. It's not, is your whole song like my whole song, but did you take portions of my work that, and are those portions that you took if you took them, are they protectable elements of my work, right? So a lot of work songs have the word V in them. 
just because your song has the and my song has the doesn't mean I infringe because the by itself, the word the is not protectable, right? So it boils down to, it's much simpler to say, you took these particular lyrics, players, they're going to play, haters, they're going to hate, and, and therefore you infringe my copyright. So if we are trying to do this analysis, right? So like if, if every other lyric in the song is different, how do you then like what is the standard for saying that there you know is infringement or there is an infringement based on this you know original expression or lack thereof right here right you know how do you i guess i guess a better way to word that would be how do you take the the portion and see how it relates to the whole right so if the question is this is this plaintiff song as a whole copyrightable the answer is almost certainly yes i don't remember the lyrics but there's enough of them like we talked about sonnets are protectable when you're saying when it's clear in the lawsuit i'm not saying you're infringing my whole song i'm saying you're infringing this portion of my song we essentially ask are those portions if they were standalone would they be copyrightable right do they meet the expression of a modicum of creativity and are they original expression Right. And so that's the way the court treated it, right? So it was a 12B6 motion to dismiss, which means we're gonna accept their pleadings as true, and yet do they have a legal basis for claim? Originally, the district court said, these, these short lyrics and by themselves, players they're gonna play, haters they're gonna hate, is not creative enough. It doesn't cross that modicum of creativity. It's just too short, it's too familiar. If this guy invented, player or hate or you know those concepts maybe you get there but players and haters have been around as the judge said in his opinion you know, kind of cleverly these concepts have been around and so this is just two very short sentences and that is not enough to be protectable expression as what the district court said as a matter of, of law we're going to decide that goes up to the ninth circuit the ninth circuit says this this question about originality and creativity, these are questions of fact. Those are not normally the kind of things you can decide on a 12B6 motion to dismiss, nor on a motion for summary judgment. You have to get to go all the way to the jury to decide that factual question, right? And so it's really, it's a lot of sort of civil procedure stuff that even when I was in law school, I go, why do they keep talking about questions of law? In fact, who cares, you know? Well, you care deeply. Because if it's a question of law, the judge can do it at the very beginning of the lawsuit, and I don't have to spend any more money with my lawyers. On the other hand, if this is a question of fact, and it's even remotely close, then I probably have to go all the way to a trial, which is insanely more expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars of attorney's fees more expensive to, to do this. So maybe I'm just going to settle for $20,000 rather than spend $400,000 in attorney's fees. Now, maybe Taylor Swift won't do that, but you get this I, this, this concept that uh, if you're going to say something's a question of fact and you can't decide that early on in the litigation, there's a ton of cost coming our way. A ton of judge time, taxpayer dollars, a ton of attorney time. And yet on the flip side, if she really did take it, then maybe as a society, we're all willing to go, yes, use those resources. Punish her, you know, take her money that she shouldn't have made off of your creative expression. So. So I, I think that sets up an interesting kind of dichotomy, right? Like there's completely original works, like, you know, in preparation for this, I found that nobody had ever used the word zittle. So if I just write the word zittle mm -hmm. on a piece of paper, fix it to a tangible medium, I now have a copyright on the word zittle, so right? That's a really good question. 
And the answer from the Copyright Office has been for a long time that we sent the Copyright Office under their, their regulations, so federal regulations. It's not Congress passed law, but the Copyright Office has said for a long time, short word, individual words, short phrases, slogans, those types of things are not copyrightable. They've justified that as saying, it's just too short to meet that modicum of creativity. But as you say, is that true? I made up a word, ziddle, that's creative by definition. So that's more creative than some of these databases that are getting copyright protection or, or some other work. So there's a lot of creativity in me creating this word. And there are many short phrases, five words, eight words that actually, man, that's, that's really, I get it. You know, that's really clever. That's original. That's cool. That's creative. So uh, years ago, a guy, uh, about now, gosh, almost 20 years ago, a professor named Justin Hughes, who does a lot of good work in this area, said, we talk about this as a rule about there's not enough creativity, but really it's just a rule that we just don't want copyright for very short phrases and expressions because copyright is the wrong tool to protect that. Maybe you can use the trademark law to protect that if you're hawking your goods with it. But we just don't want copyright protection for short words or phrases because we find it not necessary to incentivize the kind of creativity we want to incentivize. We don't want to incentivize short phrases. We don't want to incentivize bigger works, sonnets, that sort of thing. So somewhere there, there's a line to be drawn and it's devilishly hard to draw it. The district court judge would have said, this is too short. This is a short phrase. These words aren't even made up. So there was just not enough here following kind of the copyright office's guidance. And so I'm not one of grant protection. And the Ninth Circuit says, you're right. This is pretty close, but that's a question of fact. And we're going to send it. You need to send that question to a jury. So there are some that are short enough, clear enough, where courts don't have to go all the way to a jury. There are times where you say no reasonable jury could ever find this to be creative and we can stop this early but it's hard in the ninth circuit case surprised a lot of people the ninth circuit opinion surprised a lot of people by saying no you've got to go all the way to trial and now everybody's grown well everybody the artists who are the on the top that are getting these lawsuits are groaning going great now i gotta spend all this much more money maybe their lawyers are kind of excited because they're going to be employed more you right you know <laughs> there's going to be more of this litigation now but there's it's unquestioned that if the Ninth Circuit had gone the other direction, then a lot of these real questionable online lawsuits might have gone away. But now all these other people are sitting there going, dude, I wrote a song that had this concept in it and this line in it. I'm gonna sue you for infringing that line, even though you didn't take it exactly. And now apparently we gotta go through the lawsuit. So maybe they'll even just get settlement money of $10,000. It seems like it sets up a situation where like, uh, I just like kind of hold you hostage for settlement money. Yeah, kind of copyright troll idea. Yeah. So you have patent trolls and you have copyright trolls. But, you know, you have to be careful because while undoubtedly you, you can always paint a picture of one or the other being the bad actor. We can always make up a story where it's just a bunch of money hungry people who don't have valid claims trying to get some hush money. But we can also, and it's probably the truth is both and, sometimes the people on top are, are absolutely taking stuff that, you know, the jokes in your example or the enough lyrics that, no, that's too much. You borrowed from somebody else now. And sometimes I'm sure that's true. And sometimes I'm sure the former is true. So that's interesting. So just off of a kind of efficiency policy kind of rationale, I, you know, Ziddle got the X, right? Like, even though it's original, even though it's creative, nobody's ever used it. It's just not enough. And it would be 
too cumbersome to allow that to exist on its own. But if I made a, a Zittle sentence, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I've got it. But that's original. And then kind of what we're talking about with Taylor Swift is derivative. Like she knew that this player is going to play existed in the zeitgeist. And she used that to kind of inform her original expression. And so I, I kind of wanted to tease apart this idea of original expression can consist of, you know, just this sui generis, like out of, you know, original creation. And it can also be like, I changed your work enough to where I'm no longer infringing on you. Is that right? Or? Yes. And the concept of derivative work is devilishly hard to pin down sometimes in a situation like this. So there's multiple ways to look at the same problem. So one option, one, one possibility would be Taylor Swift was aware of this song. She looked at it. She liked the basic idea. We said basic ideas aren't protected. She wanted to capture that basic idea, but she knew she didn't want to infringe the copyright. So she just changed a lot so that she didn't infringe. Okay. We come across Romeo and Juliet. We like the idea of forbidden love. And I write an, a novel about forbidden love that has very little similarity to Romeo and Juliet. I can do that. Right. In, in a sense, it's derivative off the idea of forbidden love, or maybe Romeo and Juliet's in the public domain. Maybe it's much more intentionally derivative. I, I follow the plot rather closely, but I change some things, right? The, that's what we really mean when we mean derivative work, right? Which is I'm taking your work and I'm purposefully keeping portions of it, but I'm also changing portions of it. And that's really what we mean when we say derivative work. So I don't think Certainly Taylor Swift would not say that what she did was a derivative work. She's going to say, I didn't even know that song. I don't even care about that song. I just made this up myself. It was my own independent creation. And the reason people believe that or are happy to believe that is exactly what you said, that this idea of players and haters, that's in the zeitgeist. That's out there. That's floating around. So we're not convinced that she copied this person. She just probably got it from all these people talking about players and haters. On the other hand, if you have Zittles, and somebody else writes some, you know, a, a poem with Zittles that's a lot like your poem with Zittles or your lyrics with Zittles. Then all of a sudden we go, wait a minute, you know, Lloyd's the one that's the only one that's talking about Zittles. Now we're feeling like you copied Lloyd. We've actually think you didn't come up with it on your own. So, so it kind of goes more, this distinction goes more to the credibility of the potential infringement than the source of, uh, like, like there's, I guess a better way to say it, there's no different legal standard that's being applied here. It's that, you know, right. if, if it's really that unique and that, you know, out, out there, mm -hmm. then if somebody else uses it, then it's more abundantly clear. Like it's better evidence. Yeah, the definition of a derivative work starts with that it's a work that's derived from a pre-existing work. Right, so if I do an acoustic version of Taylor's, you know, song. Right. That would be a derivative. It would be a derivative work. And if it's just all you did was make it acoustic, uh, you're infringing. You know, sorry, you know, bad, bad, bad news for you, you're infringing, right? So derivative works can include things like I translate it into a different language, I shake it from a book and I make it into a movie. Those are things that are clearly based on the original. And those are derivative works. And they're so closely tracking those examples, the original work, that they're going to infringe the original work if the original work is still under copyright. And if I don't have authority to create that derivative work. Mm -hmm. So where derivative work really comes up is 
I'm basing my work off of yours. You give me permission to do that. So I create a new work. If, if, if mine is derivative of yours, it's mine. If I'm doing it with your authority, my work gets copyright protection for whatever creative expression I added on top of your original work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it seems like a real uh, interesting intellectual exercise, though, to try to distinguish between like, okay, you know, so, if, you know, Shakespeare still existed, so had a copyright on Romeo and Juliet, and then whatever it was, The Breakfast Club came in behind it and just made it, a, you know, modern, current, uh, mm -hmm. you know, application of that. Right. Then I'm saying, okay, that, you know, the, the Breakfast Club then has whatever is distinguishable between Romeo and Juliet and... The, this modern 21st century characterization. Exactly, exactly. So you have that. I mean, you have a Mont Romeo and Juliet, Leonardo DiCaprio version movie made in the, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, right? Now, Romeo and Juliet's no longer in copyright, obviously. It's from 500 years ago. But the creators of that movie have a copyright in their movie for whatever they added. So you and I can go make our own movie based on Romeo and Juliet that's in the public domain, now it's going to look a lot like the Leonardo DiCaprio movie because they're based on the same original work. But whether we infringe the Leonardo DiCaprio movie or not is what are the similarities between our work and DiCaprio's movie or the movie that DiCaprio's in? What are those similarities that are not based on the original public domain work? So did we copy those extra things? So it, you can get the, you can imagine it's doable in some cases, right? But it's it's not always easy because your initial reaction is. Oh, those two works look the same. Well, yeah, but it's because they're based on something in the public domain. And that would be what Taylor Swift would say, right? Well, look, yeah, player's going to play, play, play. Looks like players they're going to play, not because I copied you, but because uh, people are out there all the time talking about players playing. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're, it's almost like a different, uh, like, creative process. Like, I know a lot of people that, you know, write jokes or they're creative types, you know, sometimes people have an example of, like, something they really like and they just want to kind of make it their own. And then in, in that case, which seems to kind of apply here, people are just going to the public domain and saying like, hey, this is free. Like I can use this as a basis for this, but I still have protection because I have, you know, exceeded that. If you have added something extra, something right. different that is your own creative expression that crosses that modicum of creativity, then yeah, you get the protection for that aspect. So let's say you know i want to make my own you know current romeo and juliet mm -hmm. for 2022 i want to mm -hmm. do the pandemic edition right <laughs> and so i'm doing the pandemic edition of romeo and juliet and i am going to you know i make this film uh you know i'm, I'm getting into marketing and publishing and then all of a sudden leo is like hey you know i don't have enough money yet i'm trying to save the rainforest i'm going to sue you and donate all the benefits to you know, the rainforest, how, like, what is my defense? How do I say, no, 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 look, I, I changed it, right? Like if, if you're my attorney, how do I defend against uh, Leonardo's attack in court? Right, so what you want to do is say, my current work that I'm creating, look how similar it is to the Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet from 500 years ago. All those similarities are free to me to do because that's public domain. You are going to have, you, DiCaprio, or whoever owns the rights to the movie, are going to have to show me what I did that looks similar to your version that is creative to your version above and beyond what Shakespeare wrote. 
And that's what you're going to have to compare to. So it's the two sides are going to be trying to slice and dice those questions. So the, I'm trying to think of what facts would be important to really consider. Like the fact that me and Leonardo DiCaprio are both white guys probably isn't that important. Right. But the fact that maybe you use a white guy as a male lead maybe is important or not? By itself, that one fact, maybe not enough, right? But right. suppose the gender, the ethnicity of every single character matched mm -hmm. from your version and DiCaprio's version, then that might get you thinking, huh, that was a, a presumably those were creative choices, right? To, to, to make um, this person, you know, of this race and this person, those were choices that were somewhat intentionally made. And if you're copying that, that might, that might get you there, right? So it's, it's got to be enough that we would say is creative. Certainly if your costumes in your movie looked like the costumes in DiCaprio's movie, and those are not based on public domain costumes as they really existed in 1530, whatever, then you would probably be in trouble there, for example. Did they change the way that the people spoke to make it more modern? Did you copy that? Those are the kinds of things that might add up to enough similarities between yours and DiCaprio's version that you could get in trouble. Well, I think that's the another interesting question is like, so, you know, Leonardo's DiCaprio's version is just a modern rendition of Romeo and Juliet. And my, you know, pandemic uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, you know, is it that I just made a modern rendition of it? So then like, you know, I'm dressing as people dress in 2022. He's dressing as people dressed in 1991. Right. But it's the idea that it is a current day. And if you don't protect that, then like what prevents you, you know, like these these Disney, you know, copyrights and trademark you know, copyrights that go back forever. It's like at a certain point, it's like it just looks different. A hundred years later, changing the dress, changing the way people speak. It's like I can seemingly take wholesale chunks of your original expression, repurpose it as my own and just say like, no, no, no. Like, look, it's. 2022 version you could intentionally try to take as much as possible without getting caught and maybe mm -hmm. you'll maybe you'll be right about that but that will be up to 12 of your peers to decide that anyway well i guess that's what well, i guess that's what we're finding out is that there just isn't a clear line no that, no that, no clear lines that lack of clear line maybe is kind of the point and that it like discourages people from potentially infringing or they just don't know how to I don't know if that's the point. It's just how how can you make a clear line when you have so many varied fact patterns? We're just hypothesizing about one movie. Well, there's millions of other movies out there. Mm -hmm. Then there's books, and then there's paintings, and then there's this, that, and the other. So there's just no way to draft a clear line when you have so many different varying fact patterns, and you talk in terms of principles in those situations, not in terms of bright lines. If this exact Taylor Swift case goes to a different jurisdiction, it goes up to their appellate instead of the Ninth Circuit, maybe the Fifth Circuit or the Second Circuit, you very well might have gotten it out at 12B6. And they said, you're right, this is too little to this is too little to constitute protectable expression. That's interesting. So are you saying that there's like this idea that uh, you know, if I'm a copyright troll, I'm looking for a favorable market. Like I noticed a lot of these seem to happen in LA and I just assumed it's because, well, a lot of celebrities live in LA, but maybe, you know, if everything has to be in federal court, maybe judge, you know, Timmy or whatever is 
favorable. And then that can kind of, because this is such like a discretionary thing, it's like you find that judge with the discretion. Is that why so many suits are filed in LA or is it just because people live there? I don't follow it closely enough to know where the Ninth Circuit sits in terms of, do they, are they really loose and always finding works containing some modicum of creativity? I just don't have that data at my mm -hmm. fingertips. And understand that was a panel of three judges too. You could get a different three judge panel within the Ninth Circuit that would come out the other way in these really close cases. Not because anybody's disingenuous, but just because these are the close cases. These are the hard, difficult cases. So it certainly could be the case that, oh, the Ninth Circuit always does X, Y, Z. Certainly with individual judges, district court judges or individual appellate judges, yes. But you can't, in general, guarantee that you're going to get a certain district court judge and, or a certain appellate judge on a panel that's basically randomly assigned. Well, I mean, because the, the reason I was thinking of that is I know patents, which was your former practice area, you said that there was kind of a, a, a farming of that. And so... Yeah. You know, especially with this larger standard you're saying that's been created by this Ninth Circuit opinion. It's like I'm wondering if, you know, no disrespect to the judges or anything that created it, but it's like even that in and of itself, you know, if other circuits start saying, you know, Second Circuit, Fourth Circuit says, no, 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 Ninth Circuit got that wrong, you know, you just start seeing a funnel of cases uh, at, you know, content creators, people, you know, copywriting their original expression that have pocketbooks that could be uh, targeted. Um, the Ninth Circuit becomes a nice target hunting ground for that. Yeah, I think the headlines suggest that there's more and more of these kind of cases being brought. I'm always a little bit cautious because I've got friends who do great empirical research and they study the statistics and go, actually, no, this isn't a drastic increase, but the news is just covering it more. And I don't know what the answer is in copyright. There were certainly people making these claims in the 1950s, in the 1960s. And we read one in our intellectual property class, uh, Arnstein versus Porter. And he's bringing several lawsuits saying, everybody stole all my songs. They broke into my house. They, they took all my stuff. So maybe, maybe he was the original one that started this kind of stuff. Or maybe there was somebody before that. I don't know. But certainly the news seems to think this is happening more and more and these kind of decisions will tend to encourage those kinds of lawsuits for mm. sure there's no question about that so speaking of encouraging lawsuits i found one other uh case that i thought is just fascinating uh did you have a chance to look at the Gigi hadid versus paparazzi or at least kind of look at the facts a little bit i did because the the one of the rules of reading by the intellectual property cases is if you read it in any news medium they're gonna almost always get something wrong even the good ones they're better you know if you read the new york times wall street journal they're gonna get it pretty darn good but if you're reading just some websites news they're gonna mess up whether it was a copyright a patent or a trademark and they're darn sure gonna mess up the doctrine but yes i have followed that case so a little bit uh and like me on the areas that they got wrong just to basically kind of set the facts for everyone what had happened was Gigi hadid which is a world famous model was uh, you know out and about in the town as a paparazzi snapped a photo of her. And she took that photo, made some minor tweaks, or I guess that would be a very contentious. She made tweaks to the photo before then posting it on Instagram. And then the paparazzi, I guess, did what you said. He went and got a copyright on that original photo and then brought suit against Gigi Hadid. I guess the case has then been dismissed or settled 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure the outcome, right? But that's right. She she made a couple of possible allegations in there. So one allegation is that she should have some rights in the copyright itself. That's one. That's one people. That's one thing people are understanding. They're conflating with the other possible. There's a sort of there's a defense there. So one very bold argument is actually it's a photograph of me. I therefore have share in ownership rights with you, the photographer. Now, in general, we do not understand photography that way at all. If if you're if there's a photographer, they're taking pictures of you. You're consenting. They own the copyright. Full stop. Her argument is, but I made joint decisions. I chose to turn your way and smile. And in that particular photograph, perhaps she did. She actually smiled. Or maybe they turn and give an obscene gesture. But either way, they're choosing how they're going to portray themselves for that photo. And so the argument was, translated into copyright speak, I therefore became a joint author with you. You, you the photographer, are an author, but I'm a joint author. And because I'm a joint author, I have rights in the work. Now, that would be dramatic. That would be a huge change in how we understand things. And it's probably a very, very, very losing battle to argue that. But I mean, why is it though? Because like she is obviously exercising some modicum of original expression in all of the things that she did, as well as, so I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if I change the facts a little bit, because again, my favorite topics myself, you know, let's say I go perform tonight, right? I allow people to videotape and film my set. So if, if I am, you know, performing a joke, then somebody that videotapes me briefly or, you know, photographs me, like, do they have a copyright now on a video of me performing my joke? So there's actually specific legislation dealing with these sorts of questions on bootleg copies of concerts and, and you know, live broadcasts of sports games, that sort of thing. So when you're in a private venue, things change. When you're in a private venue, they can set rules about can anybody record or not. And presumably they say you can choose, you comedian can choose to, that we will film you or not perhaps, but we're not gonna let the general audience film you. And there's signs saying nobody can film. In that case, whoever's, taking the film in an authorized way, they're they're gonna own a copyright of that film. So that's, well, the paparazzi's right, it's just out there in the public. Right. And so that's one of the big distinctions there between kind of what you're asking about and what the argument here is. So it, it is true, she chose to smile, mm -hmm. right? She, she could have frowned, she could have smiled, she could have had a blank stare. So she made a choice, but I, there's a couple ways to slice it in copyright law. The, the short answer is just, that would be a mess. If we had that the rule, then that would be a mess. Now, the, the fancy, the, the, the famous people are going, oh, it doesn't sound like a mess to us. We're tired of the paparazzi. This would be a great way that they uh, might have to pay us money and therefore they would make less money and therefore um, maybe there'd be less of them and maybe that'd be a good thing for our lives. But it's just such a shift from how we've historically understood things. And joint authorship doctrinally requires a, an intent that this work be merged into a, a whole that's inseparable. And the photographer will simply say, I have no intent that you're a joint author with me. I just want to take a picture of you as you are. I don't want your creative con contributions. I just want to take a picture of you live. And so because of that doctrinally, you just don't have that intent to be joint authors from the photographer's perspective. So that's that claim is probably doomed. But G from Gigi's perspective, she's saying I was a joint author because I turned and looked and that's gonna be a better photograph, right? Than if I turn away, 
that photograph. She is saying, she would say two things. I, number one, contributed creative expression. And number two, I intended to be, merge this into a joint whole. It's, but both parties have to intend that. And because the photographer can very credibly say, uh-uh, I didn't intend any joint authorship at all. I just wanted a picture of you live. I'd prefer you didn't smile. I'd prefer you just walked by or whatever the case may be. So that's doctrinally where that's almost a non-starter in most cases. So I noticed you said that this was more of a defense than as a claim. So Gigi is not saying that she has, you know, a copyright in and of herself. She's just saying, look, I didn't uh, infringe on you. So what were the kind of defense aspects? Of right. So although there was the, the, the murmurings and I don't know what was said in the lawsuit, what was pled as to the ownership aspect, then the, the, the claim that, that she's got at least a better chance at, although it might be a low chance, is called fair use. And that's a defense. So fair use is I don't have ownership in that copyright. I'm using it though. And the law deems my use to be fair. Mm -hmm. So normally it would be infringement, but because of this fair use doctrine, I'm not in trouble anymore. Right. And that is a, a very, there's a, there's a section in the copyright statute that says, here's the various factors you have to look at. And anytime you have several factors to balance, you know that in law, that means there's no bright lines here either, right? And so fair use is asking, have you have you used this work in some way that we, I mean, broadly speaking, as society think this should be allowed? And so quintessential examples are news reporting. Mm -hmm. If I have a short video clip of a famous person walking by and I want to talk about something they did that's in the news, they did something bad, they did something good, um, Perhaps I can use that short video clip that I found somewhere else because I'm reporting news, right? And so I'm able to copy a little bit of what you did, or I quickly show a photograph that somebody else did for news reporting, and we find that to be so valuable that we allow that sort of thing. So it has newsworthiness, right? It has newsworthiness or education, famous for, for schools, professors, universities, that sort of thing. Maybe I can photocopy an article, that I, a law review article that I think is great, and I can distribute to my class for an educational purpose. And maybe that's okay, that, that would be fair use. She's not, doesn't feel quite like that. She just took this picture and posted it on Instagram and perhaps just said, here's a picture of me I like. Right. I don't know what really she said, but then that's a little less justifiable. If on the other hand, she wants to say, comment about the terribleness of the paparazzi and here's an example of where they founded me and took a picture of me when I didn't want them to, now maybe that's newsworthy and maybe she would have a fair use defense. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look at all these factors of, um, you know, one question is, did she do this for a commercial purpose? Was she trying to make money off this photograph in the same way or in a similar way to what the paparazzi wants to do is make money off these photographs? Maybe, maybe not. She gets money indirectly from Instagram followers and how many people follow her. So it's not direct. She's not selling this photograph to you for the right, you know, for $50. So there's some uh, pecuniary interest on her part, but it's a little bit attenuated. So that would be a factor. You know, another factor is how much did you take? Well, she kind of took the whole photograph. She made a little bit of decisions to crop it a little bit. Maybe she changed the filter a little bit, but still looks basically like the photo. So she didn't change much. She took a lot, right? You ask about transformative purpose, right? What is the, the, the statute doesn't list it, but the case law talks about was, did she transform this somehow from what it originally was to what it is now? Well, I don't know how the paparazzi work. I assume they post a lot of stuff on their social media account. So if the paparazzi have an Instagram account about look at Gigi, 
and she has an Instagram that, account that's basically saying, look at Gigi. Those are the same kind of use that's not transformative. If instead she was taking it and commenting upon the paparazzi, then that might be transformative purpose or use. Mm. So you look at those all, all those sorts of factors and you you decide whether this constitutes fair use or not. So she she's going to have a colorable argument for that defense. But again, there's a lot of factors, a lot of factual questions. So that's the kind of thing that might go all the way to uh, a jury, which is going to be expensive potentially for both sides. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting to think that you don't necessarily have, like somebody else can copyright your you like they can copyright a picture of you they can copyright a video of you any you know original expression they apply that is an expression applied to you like right. you can't prevent that from being copyrighted correct um that's not that strange right all about our sorry biographies have been around for mm -hmm. centuries right well that's about me that's about my life how can you get rights in that the answer is you don't get the rights in the facts because facts are not copyrightable. You get the rights in that bio biographical expression, all the way that you package the facts and all the way you express them. So just because you wrote a biography about me doesn't mean I can't write a biography about myself or that I can't hire somebody else to write another biography about me. Are they going to look similar? Sure, because it's based on me. Mm -hmm. Same way with the photograph. They don't own you just because they own the photograph, the copyright on the photograph. They just got that one photograph. Somebody else can take a photograph of you that looks very similar where you're wearing the same clothes and you're smiling. And, and so it, at one level it goes, that's a photograph of me, how could you own it? But another level it's like, it's such a, we don't own you, we just own this particular creative capturing of you. It would, it would change if I take your image and I use it to suggest that you're endorsing my goods. That would mm -hmm. be your name, image, likeness stuff that we hear about now all with college athletes. That is a different problem. That the law protects in a very in a different way. It's not copyright per se, but that is protected. But if all I'm doing is taking a picture of you and publishing it, assuming I'm not invading your privacy in ways that the law prohibits, I can do that. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm trying to think. I should pay more attention in criminal procedure, but I know uh, Chief Justice Roberts, he always draws this distinction between, you know, everything else in the phone. It's like, you know, the, the laws that apply to searching your car and searching your house and searching everything else don't apply to your phone because it's so intimate. Uh -huh. And it's like when I'm thinking about the difference between writing a biography about me and taking a picture or video of me, it's like it feels much more intimate, right? Like you can read a biography and not really, you know, as a fan of biographies, you know, sometimes the good ones, you come away feeling like you really know that person and sometimes you don't, but it's like if I was to have a 20 minute video of you, I think you really get to get a sense of that person's personality. You get to have a sense of how they talk. What was their, you know, it, it just feels more intimate in that way. And so obviously the copyright law doesn't agree with me, but I just think it would surprise a lot of people maybe listening that they don't have that protection. Yeah, on the flip side, you go out in public all the time and you realize you might be in the background of photographs. You might be videoed by CCT cameras. Uh, Etc. And mm -hmm. so when you're out in public, you don't have that same expectation of privacy mm -hmm. that you would now. Obviously, if they break into your house and take a picture of somebody in the shower, well, we've got all sorts of problems there. But when you're out walking around and the paparazzi are following you, you just have less expectation of privacy. And think about how many photos they submit to every day. These famous people, they, right. they're always getting photographed all the time and they're happy to do it because it builds their recognition, etc. So 
there's some balancing there to be sure. I mean, the paparazzi have been a problem. I mean, princes Diana, if you remember that, I mean, some people blame the paparazzi for that crash and the, the stress that they put people under, et cetera. So this has been a problem that's been around for a while. What sort of batteries do we have from things like the paparazzi? Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because there's such a balance, right? Is that, you know, there's this, I want to promote myself piece. You know, I got a new movie coming out. I got a new stand-up special coming out. I want promotion. So now I want the paparazzi to take pictures and I want to be on the front of USA Today and I want to, mm -hmm. but then at these other times, you know, maybe I'm in public, but I'm in public with my family. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's like, it seems like the ability for others to copyright, gain the protection and then monetize mm -hmm. those moments don't seem as favorable as the other moments. Mm -hmm. But then, there's, like you said, there's really no good way to draw the distinction between the two. Yeah, you get into free speech and um, everybody's right to free news reporting. Mm -hmm. And if we say paparazzi can't do this, but legitimate news reporters can, where do we draw that line? So there's a whole lot of policy that's implicated there, to be sure. But And there's no reason we couldn't say, eh, if you're paparazzi, you just simply can't own the copyright. You can take the pictures, you can publish the pictures, but you don't own a copyright. In it. We could change the law to say that, and who knows what all the effects would be. It's an interesting um, mental game. So just to kind of recap briefly, we, we talked about how original expression is necessary and it needs to be attached to a tangible medium. And then from there, we talked about what it was, how you distinguish that from a derivative work. So you can get a copyright protection on your original work, or you can get a copyright on a uh, de derivative? derivative. There we go. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, you can get a copyright on a derivative work, and then you have the protection between what you got from the public domain or wherever you got it from and what your original expression was attached to that. And then we kind of briefly talked about the protections and, you know, Gigi Hadid's fair use defense and some of the uh, factors that go into that. Is there any real area of um, copyright protection that we kind of major area that you think would be applicable to you know the the TikTok generation that that you think could just briefly bring onto the radar i would say anytime i talk to anybody that does social media stuff or web stuff there's this huge misconception among a lot of non-legally trained or legally informed people that as long as i cite my source i'm okay i can take a picture from your website or your TikTok, and i just say oh that's lloyd's and I tell my students, all you have done is identified that you know you are copying Lloyd's work. And so you are copying Lloyd's work. That's an element of the case for infringement. You've just admitted you're copying, you know. So citing a source, there's all sorts of norms out there about if you borrow things, we want you to cite the source. And there's people that don't want to enforce their copyright. They just want to be recognized for their contribution and their source. And that's fine. But that's not a copyright thing. Citing your source doesn't insulate you from copyright at all. So that's an important one. Uh, a more nuanced one, as you were summarizing, I realized one thing we didn't talk about is the derivative work thing only works. Well, let me say this. If I want to create a derivative work and have rights in something that I create above and beyond the original work, I either need to be doing that based on the public domain or I need to be doing it with the permission of the copyright owner of the original work. If I don't have permission and I create a derivative work, the law says I own nothing not even the creative stuff I put on top of the original work because I infringed that original work by copying it. If I, if I indeed infringe the derivative works based upon your work, I infringe it. 
I don't even get a copyright in the extra stuff, the creative stuff that I put on. I get mm. nothing. And so that's a, maybe something to keep in mind when I go, oh, I'll, I'll take Lloyd's TikTok video and I'll use it verbatim, but then I'll add some stuff to it. Well, no, I, if I don't have your permission and I'm infringing, then I get, I infringe your work and I get no protection for the extra stuff that I did. Mm. So it's very interesting. Yep. So any departing wisdom that you would uh, like to give to either content creators, people in general, do you have a parting advice? If you have one piece of advice you could give to your younger self, what would it? Uh, I don't know about my younger self, but for content creators out there, you just have to be incredibly careful about trying to learn about copyright by Googling, because okay. I just see it over and over and over again that it is just wrong, wrong, wrong. Mm. So I'm not trying to say you have to, find a lawyer but once things get a little bit thorny you you probably do need a lawyer and by then sometimes it may be too late to avoid exposure but sticking to sources like the copyright office that that's helpful right or there's a, a few helpful you know certainly there's good websites out there the authors alliance and sort those sorts of things but just googling and finding it on you know stacked or whatever it's just no it's not it's not a good it's not a good place to find good legal rules or advice <laughs> so you're saying that you can't trust everything you're reading the internet exactly <laughs> exactly that is my parting <laughs> wisdom well thank you very much for joining us today absolutely it's been a pleasure this is the campbell law reporter Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.